Well, good morning. It's nice to see all of you. Uh, we would love for you to have a Bible in your lap if you don't have one. Raise your hand and Pastor Andy will bring you one. And when you get a Bible, you can join me at the end of John 16. And those of you who last minute were able to join us online, uh, wish you were with us, but glad you are with us digitally. So this morning, by God's grace, we're going to continue and finish John 16, verses 16 through 33. It's a long section of scripture. And Jesus is bringing to a close this longer section that's called the Upper Room Discourse, or his farewell speech before he goes to the cross. And these final words are going to lead us into chapter 17, which is Jesus's lengthy high priestly prayer. And so these are his final words before he goes to prayer. So with that, uh, if you're taking notes this morning, the subtitle of the message is Take Heart. Take Heart. If you would join me in verse 16, and I'm simply going to read verses 16 to 18 just to set a portion of God's word before us this morning, but we will be working through down to verse 33. Jesus is continuing to speak in verse 16, and he says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he is saying to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. And so they were asking, so they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Well, this is the word of God. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is clear, true, right, beautiful, lovely, and treasure. We want to rejoice at your word like one who finds great treasure. We ask, O Lord, that you would satisfy us with your love this morning. We thank you that we, as we awake, that you have cast our sins behind your back, thrown them into the depths of the sea, and trampled them underfoot through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. And this morning, in many ways that we can agree with the disciples, we do not know what he is talking about. And so we pray that by your spirit, you would illuminate the text of scripture. You would accomplish all of your purposes in all of our hearts to to shape us into the image of Jesus, to build us together as a family of Christ, to shine the light of your gospel through us, to see the prodigal brought home, the suffering comforted, and the wayward rebuked, and rejoicing now in Christ and the lost saved. Lord, you have many purposes to accomplish, and so we ask you to do them, Lord, through the preaching of your word. And to that end, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, Amen. Well, it, it goes without saying to say that we live in a world that is anything but characterized as a peace and joy and love-filled world. There is a reason why the phrase doom scrolling exists. Open the app, scroll and be confronted with the turmoil of this world. 
the strife of this world, the hatred of this world, the self-love of this world. The political parties are not what they were two decades ago, let alone what they were in the 1960s or earlier. This world, especially in the West, is tearing itself apart. But every person in this world, whether it's the individual, whether it's the tribe, the town, the nation state, or globalist utopians, every person in this world is looking for peace, joy, and love. You are looking for peace, joy, and love. But the nature of this world cannot create it. And if it does create some sense, some faux sense of peace, joy, and love, this world cannot sustain it. In fact, this world can only wreck and ruin any semblance of peace, joy, and love. And on top of this, as we've seen here in the Gospel of John, we live in a world that hates God. Because it is a world that does not want to be told it is in sin. That it's under God's wrath and needs to repent of that sin. We live in a world that is hostile to God and hostile to itself like cancer. But Jesus, Jesus can give peace. Jesus gives joy and only Jesus can minister true Love, all that which the world seeks, only Jesus can give, and the world rejects Jesus because he alone can give it. And in our text today, Jesus closes out his farewell speech as he prepares to pray in John 17, as I said earlier. And Jesus' final words to the apostles before he goes to the Lord in prayer offers us the only source and only sustenance of true joy and peace and power. And so if you've come this morning feeling that you are lacking in peace, joy, and love and power, if you're looking for peace, joy, and love power, look no further. King Jesus, in His Word, will speak it to us this morning. So if you're taking notes, three points to the message this morning. Point number one, Jesus has overcome the world. So take heart and have his joy. That's verses 16 to 22. Point number two, Jesus has overcome the world. So take heart and pray in his name. It's verses 23 to 28 and we will close our time with our final point. Jesus has overcome the world. So take heart and have his peace. And for that we will turn to verses 29 to 33. So point number one, Jesus has overcome the world, take heart and have his joy. Look at verses 16 down to 22. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. And so they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Pause there. I love this passage. And I think you should too. 
we need to pause for a moment and just appreciate the end of verse 18 when these apostles are looking at Jesus and then whispering to each other, we don't know what Jesus is saying. The disciples are just like us. The word of God can be hard to understand. The word of God is mysterious. The word of God, God can recall, require long and heavy labor and a lifetime to understand all of it. And even when we think that we have understood all of it, we recognize that we, we haven't. Not all of the Bible is simple. Not all of what Jesus says is easily understood. We can get confused and confounded by Scripture. We can secretly turn inward and think that something is wrong with us. As if everybody else understands what Jesus is saying. Understanding Him perfectly, except me. But that's not the case. Even the disciples with Jesus 24-7 for three years still did not know what he was talking about in its fullest sense even on this eve of his betrayal. God inspired hard texts. And it is our joy to search them out over a lifetime with the church. So take heart. Even the disciples did not know what Jesus was talking about. And that's why he gifted the Spirit to us to illuminate the text and to bring us into greater levels of understanding. That's just a side note. I just want to point that out to you so that you can appreciate we are in good company if you've ever read the Bible and scratch your head and said, I don't know what he's talking about. But begin, pick it up again in verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again a little while you will see me. Truly, truly I say to you. You will weep. And lament. But the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. But your sorrow will not. Or your sorrow will turn. Into joy. When a woman is giving birth. She has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you. You have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. We know that the disciples at this point in the story... They don't understand that just in a few short hours from this evening discussion, Judas will meet Jesus and the apostles with a great group, a great horde of bad guys who have come out to capture Jesus. Jesus will be betrayed. He will be beaten, brutalized, illegally charged and crucified for our sins. Excuse me. The world gathered under the guidance of the devil will rejoice at the death of God's Son. The world will view it destroying God the Son incarnate and as a defeat of the gospel. Now, perhaps the human beings didn't recognize that, at least, well, the religious leaders probably did. The Romans were just making political decisions, but Satan knew. Satan knew and he wanted to crush the gospel and crush God's son underfoot. 
And so the devil thinks that he wins, as do his minions. And when Jesus dies on the cross, the world will rejoice, not for salvation, but for the death of God's Son. They're going to give each other presents for it. All the newscasts, as it were, will celebrate Jesus' death as a good riddance of a criminal and a charlatan and a fake. The world rejoices because it seems that the darkness has overcome the light. And rightly, the disciples will weep, they'll lament, they'll be sorrowful, as Jesus says. All the terms clustered together to describe shoulder-shaking sobs, collapsed knees, and broken hearts, and dashed dreams. There could not be a greater divide in all of human existence at the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. The greater divide between the response of the world rejoicing at Jesus' death and the sorrow of the disciples. And yet, who do we worship? We don't worship a dead God. We worship a living God. We don't worship a God who is truly man and truly God who is still in the grave. We worship a God who has risen from the grave. And more than that, we worship a God who alone, Isaiah 61.3, who can bring beauty out of ashes. You see, in a way, as Jesus, Jesus describes to the apostles, in a way similar to the labor pain of a woman suffering in hard labor, but for exceeding joy when she holds her baby, it overshadows all that previous suffering. So with Jesus, death did not defeat Jesus. Rather, it was the death of death in the death of Christ. Jesus got up. Jesus got up from the dead and he strode out of that tomb. Which means that is why Jesus says to the apostles and says to you and me and says to all who hear and all who will bow the knee in allegiance to Jesus and repent of their sins and trust his atoning death for the Christian. There is always joy on the other side of sorrow. For the Christian, there is only and always only joy on the other side of sorrow. For the Christian, there is only and always hope because Jesus conquered the grave. God the Father accepted His sacrifice. He lived the sinless life that you couldn't and wouldn't live. Jesus did it for us. And the certainty of the unending an ever-increasing joy of eternal life because Jesus is risen and ascended. The apostles don't know it. At this point in the story, they don't get it. And yet Jesus is arming them with future joy for when He rises. Jesus' life really was perfect. He really was without sin. His death really did atone for all of our sins, past, present, and future. He really was resurrected for our justification. He really ascended into heaven and is seated next to the Father. He really has poured out His Spirit. Only the Gospel. Only in the Gospel can a person find unbreakable joy in a broken world. This world cannot give you peace. This world cannot give you joy. It cannot give you love. 
only Jesus can. And the gospel joy that Jesus gives is a joy rooted in the truth of Christ. It's a joy not of this world. It's a peace not of this world. It's a love not of this world. It's a joy that can exist even in tears. It's a peace that can exist even in trials. But it's a deep-rooted joy in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Joy in Christ is a joy that cannot be stolen. It cannot be quenched. It is a light that cannot be snuffed out. It is an unbreakable joy. So also you have sorrow now, Jesus says in verse 22, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. These apostles, the disciples, Jesus told them they were going to be killed for his name's sake. So even in their persecution, suffering, ostracization, their outcastness, even their death, even Peter crucified upside down as, as history tells us and more, even in all of those circumstances, no one can steal the joy of Jesus that the Spirit gave to the apostles and neither can they take it from you. One commentator has said, Christianity does not remove all of life's problems. It's simply to say that Christianity explains all of life's problems. Subjugating the life of the world to the life provided by God for the future has been safely secured in the past, safely nailed to a cross. Church, Jesus has overcome the world. So take heart and have his joy in the gospel. And tied to that, point number two, Jesus has overcome the world, so take heart and pray in his name. Look at verses 23 to 28. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until you have asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Once again in this passage, Jesus returns us to the topic of prayer. Uh, he touched on it back in verses chapter 14 a number of times, 15, and now again in 16. And now we see that we are to pray in Jesus' name. And our prayer... In Jesus' name, if you look in verse 24, is tied to our joy being full. So Jesus gives us his joy 
But notice that joy and presumably peace and love and more are tied to prayer. There certainly is a lesson there for us that it may be that part of our lack of joy in life and lack of peace and more is tied to our lack of prayer and praying to the Father in Christ's name. We have looked at this much, so to touch on it briefly, let's focus on this idea of Jesus having us pray in his name. To pray in Jesus' name is not a verbal signature. It's, it's, it's not something that you say that if you forget to say, the, the message doesn't send to the Father. Or somehow if you don't say, in Jesus' name, amen, the prayer doesn't work. That's not what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It's not a magical incantation. It's not a divine spell. What does it mean when we say that we pray in Jesus' name? And, and, and you can close your prayer by Jesus by saying in Jesus' name, amen. I just want you to know it's okay to do that. But to pray in Jesus' name is about access. It's about access that we have in Jesus because Jesus alone Live the life that was sinless, died for our sins and rose from the grave. And so it's because of Jesus and our repentance and faith in him that we have access. It's, it's, he's the key to heaven, so to speak. It's about access that we have in Jesus and only to Jesus. No Jesus, no access to God. Only through union with Christ Will God receive our prayers? So to pray in Jesus' name is to acknowledge that it's only by Him that we approach boldly the throne of grace. To pray in Jesus' name is about praying under Jesus' authority. Meaning according to the word of Christ. The Bible. It means that we don't approach God on our wills and whims and wishes. But that our praying and our desiring and our asking is all formed and informed by the fullness of the word of God. And we approach God with his word and pray it back to him. That's part of what it means to pray in Jesus' name. We have his word. And so we speak the word of Christ back to the Christ. Back to the Father and the Spirit. To pray in Jesus' name is about being welcomed to God. And his throne of grace only through faith in the sinless life of Jesus. His substitutionary death for our sin and his rising from the grave. His ascension into heaven and his session next to the Father. To pray in Jesus' name means we recognize that we are cloaked in Christ's righteousness alone. That you don't boldly approach the throne of grace because of something special in you. but Because of the specialness of Christ. His righteousness. It's, he gives us those garments of praise and the garments of righteousness that grant us access, so to speak. It's not a righteousness of our own. So to pray in Jesus' name means that it's only because of Christ and who He is. All we can bring to the table is sin. And all that Jesus gives us is cleansing from those sins and access to the Father. And the Father gives us pardon and grace and adoption. To pray then in Jesus' name is to ask God to accomplish the very purposes and promises He lays out in Scripture. But how is that possible? And that's where I want you to focus on verse 28. Look again at what Jesus says in verse 28. 
I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leading the world and going to the Father. Do you see those words written in your Bible? These words, I came from the Father, have come into the world, incarnation, and now I am leaving the world, resurrection and ascension, and going to the Father. Verse 28 in John 16 is one of the clearest declarations from the mouth of Jesus to his in or to his pre-incarnate existence and deity. That's why we can pray in Jesus' name. Jesus was not just some holy man that God really liked, and therefore we are given access to God. No, Jesus is the pre-incarnate, self-existent, second person of the Trinity who became incarnate, truly God and truly man. He is God the Son, pre-existent with the Father and the Spirit from all time, so to speak. God the Son, when He came into the world, verse 28, united humanity to Himself, unmixed and unconfused, perfect in divinity, perfect in humanity, truly God and truly man. That's verse 28. That's why we say these things about Jesus. Jesus came from the Father. He, he knew that He was God. Jesus knew that He came into the world Virgin born, truly God, truly man. And he knew that he would die and rise. And he knew that he would ascend and he knew that he would be seated. Again, this is one of the clearest declarations from Jesus. So when you're speaking with a friend or sharing the gospel with a family member, a classmate, a professor, a co-worker, and they say, Jesus never claimed to be God, take him to this verse. There's many other passages, but just for our all intents and purposes, in verse 28, I came from the Father, pre-existence. And as assuredly Jesus came from the Father, Jesus knew he would return to the Father because redemption was accomplished and would be applied by the Spirit. That's why we can take heart and why we can pray. We pray because Jesus is truly God and truly man. And he really did rise. So even though we pray and those prayers don't seem to be answered from our perspective, maybe it feels like your words just bounce off the ceiling. Maybe deep down in the recesses of your heart you wonder that, am I just being a fool for speaking into the air? The answer is no. You're doing the wisest and smartest thing you can possibly do, boldly approaching the throne of grace in the name of Jesus because Jesus came from the Father, came into the world, and is back with the Father. But there's another reason we pray. Not just because Jesus is God the Son incarnate, verse 28, but we also pray because of verse 27. Glance your eyes up at the previous verse. Look at what he says. Embedded in the gospel, listen to this beautiful truth. Verse 27, for the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Do you, do you realize what Jesus says in verse 27 is the ground of it all? 
the Father's love for us. It is easy for us to be functional heretics when it comes to the Trinity. What do I mean? We, we separate and divide God from God. We like to break him into pieces. And we separate his operations and his relations to us. This is a really complicated way of saying that we think that, well, the spirit's a spirit, so uh, it has no feelings, but he's a he and he does. He loves us. And then we, we think that, well, Jesus loves us, but the Father hates us, and he's an, annoyed with us, and he only wants to crush us. And so somehow Jesus maybe snuck out of heaven and came down to secretly save us, to assuage the mean Father God that there is. We can wrongly think that the gospel is somehow only Jesus' plan. As if Jesus, well, he secretly lived and he secretly died and he secretly rose and kind of snuck back up next to the Father in heaven and, and maybe the Father looked over and said, were you gone? No, I wasn't. We can become functional heretics thinking that somehow Jesus and the Father are pitted against each other and their love for us or lack thereof in the Father and the Spirit well, he's just doing his own thing. All that is the opposite of truth. Let's not be functional heretics. The truth of the matter is that Scripture prioritizes the gospel as the Father's eternal plan because of his pre-existing love for his adopted children. And because of the Son's love for us and the Spirit's love for us, all equally shared among the Trinity, but the Father sent His Son because He loves us. Do you remember that John 3.16 is still in your Bible? For God so loved the world that He gave His one only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We think that God is a reluctant Savior, that Father is an, the Father is an unwilling lover of his children, so to speak, but it's the Father's eternal plan. The Son performed it. The Spirit applied the Son's work he performed, which the Father planned. Did you catch it? Scripture prioritizes that the gospel is a gospel of love shared among the Trinity, and the Father has sent his Son. So so we can pray... In Jesus' name, because the Father had a plan of the gospel to love His children and through His Son and Spirit to bring us into the divine love of the Trinity, the Father loves us. And so it's not like when you read in Romans about how the the Son intercedes for us with the Father. You can get the wrong picture that some of the Father is angry on His throne and wants to jump off and crush His children that's wrong. There's, a, there's an intra-Trinitarian conversation taking place about gospel love for us and the Spirit's sanctification in our lives of shaping us into the image of Jesus. That's what it means that the Son intercedes for us and more. The Father Himself loves you. Jesus loves you. The Spirit loves you. Don't ever disbelieve this truth. And it's the Father's pre-existent and eternal love for us that fuels us to go to God in prayer because we want 
And Jesus wants, he says it here in this verse, ask and you will receive so that your joy may be full. Verse 24, do you see how they're all linked together? Jesus wants to give us, gives us, to give us his joy and it's tied to praying and we pray because Jesus is God the Son and above it all, it's the Father loves us and is a glad Father who welcomes us. He's the father who stands on the porch with tears in his eyes to see the prodigal son returning home and runs out to kiss his son and hug him. We all need to hear that. We all need to remember that. Because the world and the enemy of our souls does not want us to believe this and dedicate our lives to this truth. Jesus has overcome the world, so take heart. Have his gospel joy, pray in his name, and lastly, point number three, Jesus has overcome the world, so take heart and have his peace. Verses 29 to 33. His disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figures of speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. But Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming and indeed it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus asks rhetorically, do you really believe now? Because he knows and says they will abandon Jesus. There will be a skirmish in the garden. Jesus will be arrested and they will flee. They may sneak to the cross to watch, but they will run away. Peter will deny Jesus by that fire and more. To the man and woman, they will leave Jesus. And they will all abandon him. So do they really believe? They will when they see him risen. But the Father will see Jesus through. The actions of man, even the apostles, cannot thwart God's gospel plan. And that's because God's gospel plan does not depend upon man or the faithfulness of the apostles, but on the faithfulness of God. The gospel plan depends on the triune God. And Jesus's Final words, his last words in verse 33, and he's about to pray as we get into chapter 17. His final words here, I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. These last words link with some of his first words in 14.1. Do you remember 14.1? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And what does he say here? 
take heart. I have overcome the world. All that Jesus has said to the apostles and through them to us is to put courage and unwaveringness into your hearts in the context of a dark world that wants to overcome the light of Christ in you and in me and in the church. All that Jesus said is meant to strengthen us. He is putting gospel strength into our bones so that we can be fortified against all the attacks and fiery darts and all that the world can bring because Jesus has overcome the world. And so he says, take heart. And it's all linked to praying in his name. In this farewell speech, Jesus, across chapters 13 and 14 and 15 and now 16, and he's going to pray it in 17, Jesus has promised to give us not just joy in the abstract, not just peace in the abstract, not just love in the abstract. No, Jesus is giving us his joy, his peace, his love. His Spirit's perseverance. And it's a peace in and through the chaos of this world. So all the doom scrolling that you do on your device is meant to not shake the unshakable peace that we have because Jesus has lived, died, risen, and ascended. You know why? Because your salvation is sure. Your joy, we read a few moments ago, no one can take from you. Our salvation is sure and steady and we will most assuredly live and rise from the grave because Jesus most assuredly lives and he has risen from the grave and we will live eternally in the new heavens and new earth. We have a peace. We have a joy. And we live in a world that hates the joy and peace of Christ. But listen, do you know what that does as Jesus arms and fortifies us with his love, joy, and peace? This does not mean that we as individual Christians, as a church body, our brothers and sisters in gospel preaching churches around this town, we do not retreat from the world, but advance against it. Advance against the gates of hell Armed with all the armor and sword of Ephesians 6. Which means we are clothed in Christ. Armed with grace. Speak the truth in love. Rebuke when necessary. But speak that truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To see the lost saved people go from darkness to light. And death to life. Just as someone did for you and me. We don't retreat. We advance with the gospel. We show up at the gates of hell to pull people out of it. Or rather, the spirit to pull people out of it. What does it mean then when Jesus says, I have overcome the world? It means that Jesus has conquered and vanquished. There is no enemy There is no rebel in all creation, human or demonic, that Jesus will not finally crush underfoot of his wrath 
or save. The Greek word for overcome certainly means conquered and it means to vanquish foes, but it also can be used in a legal sense, in the sense of win when you are accused, meaning that you are free from a criminal charge and you're acquitted. So last week, when we read how the world, when the Spirit is sent to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and it's the self-righteousness of the world and, um, and false judgment of the world, this is Jesus' acquittal, although he was never guilty, but the world accused him of such. He is, when he rose, he overcame, not just to crush the enemy, but to be vindicated and validated in all that he said and did. And so what are we to do in light of hateful, of being in a hateful and hostile world full of tribulation and trial? What does Jesus say? In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What we are to do is to take heart in Jesus. What does that mean? It means... Keep believing. Keep relying on His Spirit. It means to pray into, lean into Christ's love, joy, peace, and perseverance. Hold fast to the truth knowing that this is the gospel. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Not man and not ourselves. It's through the Spirit of Christ who will never leave us nor forsake us. The Trinity is with us and for us. He will bring us home. Take heart is a verbal imperative, meaning it's a command. It's what we're to do. It's in the present, which means it's what we're to do right now and to keep doing. Take heart in Christ. We don't lose heart. We take heart. It's like what Hugh Latimer (coughs) said to Nicholas Ridley, as they were being burned at the stake a few hundred years ago by the Catholics for the gospel faith. And here's what Latimer said, lashed to the stake, flames licking at their feet. Latimer said to his friend, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out because it's a gospel light. Take heart. Jesus has overcome. And we most certainly will overcome in him. For that we can take gospel heart. Our eyes. And what we read. And what we see and experience. Can communicate the opposite to us. That it seems like Jesus has not overcome. But remember the logic of the cross. What looked like the supreme defeat persecution and martyrdom, as it were, of Jesus proved to be the supreme source of salvation and condemnation of the world and of Satan and salvation for his children, the father's children. So it's the same with us. God works counterintuitively. And so we take heart with gospel hearts, hearts built by the gospel, shaped by the gospel, informed by the gospel, empowered by the gospel of Jesus Christ, And so then we close with words to put courage into us and to take heart 
Romans 8, 26 and following. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom the Father foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom the Father predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Church, take heart. Don't stop believing. And friend, if you don't know Christ, now is the day of salvation. Now is your summons to the cross. Now is the time to repent of your sins and receive the forgiveness that only Jesus gives and wants to give you. Have joy in Jesus. Pray in His name and rest in His peace. Amen. Oh Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace in our life and pray that by your Spirit you would cause us to believe these truths and that we would be known as a people a gospel people full of the love of Christ, peace of Christ, and joy of Christ who pray in His name without end. Amen.